Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Angela Carter's The Lady of the House of Love, originally published in 1975. This episode was commissioned by a Patreon supporter, so this is an extra bonus episode that you get thanks to that person. Uh, And this was an extremely, extremely generous commission. In addition to this story, this Patreon supporter has commissioned four other stories. So at other points this year, we will be bringing you extra episodes on stories by Margaret Atwood, James Tiptree Jr., Daphne du Maurier, and Karen Russell. All of that's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be really exciting. Karen Russell, we've done before, but the rest of these authors are all going to be new to the show. And that's just a really awesome thing for us. And as I said, this is extremely generous. So thank you so much for this commission. We really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. I'm really excited uh, to talk to you maybe for the second time in our lives, Glenn, about Margaret Atwood. So that'll be that'll be really exciting. I, I really like Margaret Atwood. And then also sometimes I don't like her so much. And uh, I can't wait to, to talk about her as a writer and then also uh, the story we cover. And yeah, I, I'm familiar with James Tiptree Jr. and Daphne du Maurier, have not read them. So I am really grateful to our Patreon supporter who commissioned these episodes This is the reason uh, why, you know, I do the show on some levels. I mean, there's lots of reasons, but (laughs) this exposure to new writers, an excuse to read people that have been on my to be read pile for a long time is really a great pleasure. So thank you so much. But as we said, we're talking about this Angela Carter story today, The Lady of the House of Love. And uh, this is kind of a weird story. It's uh, kind of a late Gothic tale. I mean... It's late in the fact that it was written in 1975, but also the time period it takes place in uh, leading up to World War One is a big part of the story. And uh, it's got ghouls and, and vampires and stuff, but it's, a, it's also a quiet meditation. So why don't we just get right into it, Glenn? At last, the revenants became so troublesome, the peasants abandoned the village, and it fell solely into the possession of subtle and vindictive inhabitants who manifest their presences by shadows that fall almost imperceptibly awry. Too many shadows, even at midday, shadows that have no source in anything visible. By the sound, sometimes, of sobbing in a derelict bedroom where a cracked mirror suspended from a wall does not reflect a presence. By a sense of unease that will afflict the traveler unwise enough to pause to drink from the fountain in the square that still gushes spring water from a faucet stuck in a stone lion's mouth. A cat prowls in a weedy garden. He grins and spits, arches his back, bounces away from an intangible on four fear-stiffened legs. Now all shun the village below the chateau in which the beautiful somnambulist helplessly perpetuates her ancestral crimes. Wearing an antique bridal ground, The beautiful queen of the vampires sits all alone in her dark, high house under the eyes of the portraits of her demented and atrocious ancestors, each one of whom, through her, projects a baleful posthumous existence. She counts out the tarot cards, ceaselessly construing a constellation of possibilities, as if the random fall of the cards on the red, plush tablecloth before her could precipitate her from her chill, shuttered room into a country of perpetual summer, and obliterate the perennial sadness of a girl who is both death and the maiden. 
All right. That uh, that was the opening of The Lady of the House of Love. It was two paragraphs. It was a massive wall of text. I mean, that's a, a page long, but I really wanted to make sure that listeners had an opportunity to get immersed in the language of this story before I start to, you know, break it into parts and paraphrase it as we normally do here, <laughs> because I just love the language here, uh, you know, the, the whole story. I mean, I love the language of this whole story, but I do also think that this opening, this opening is just incredibly evocative. Yeah, it's really gorgeous language. I mean, truly. And it gives me the sense of this once enchanted town that is now haunted by the undead, the revenants who have returned from the grave. You know, the lack of care taken for the town by its ruler, the lord or queen, countess, we'll see, as is the case here. Uh, Carter is just really sending up a flare, telling us that we're fixed squarely within the Gothic story. We've got a crumbling town, an aristocracy who has given up its duties to its people. But we know that we're going to be focused on the aristocracy by the way that Carter moves us from this brief history of the town to the present moment with the town's ruler in her castle. It's such a beautiful opening, and it really helps to set the mood for the text as a whole. I'm immediately hooked in this opening with this bit about the tarot cards and how this woman in the wedding dress is somehow both death and the maiden. I mean, apart from it being gorgeous language, which we've emphasized, it's it's a brilliant hook as well. It's hard to imagine anything being more gothic than this, right? I mean, this is like just textbook perfect gothic, right? The the story, as you say, Brandon, is going to be about the aristocracy. It's going to be about this aristocratic character who, hey, that's also the title of the story, right? It is the lady of the house of love. But Carter starts us off, you know, this first paragraph with the setting, right? We get the moody setting. I mean, it's significantly better than it was a dark and stormy night, but we're just getting, you know, what's the setting like? And then we move into the specifics of who lives in this setting because the setting is so important for establishing the mood and kind of the the parameters of the story. And she just nails it perfectly. And really even almost the description of the setting and the character almost mirror each other perfectly. Yeah. There's a lot of really tightly constructed language in this story. And we'll be pointing some of that out as we continue along. There's another trick that Carter plays here as well that I think uh, would would get you sent home from a creative writing course or at least get you some (laughs) critical comments anyway, but that I think is absolutely brilliant here, which is that she moves even just in the, the first paragraph, she begins in the past tense but then in the middle of this paragraph, she switches from one sentence to the uh, the next. She switches from, from past tense to present tense. And then we're going to get the bulk of the story for quite a while in the present tense. Uh, though we'll, we'll make sure we mention again that we, uh, when we switch again, because we will, we will switch to the past tense again. And that is just an interesting trick, right? What that does to the mood that we are in as we're reading the story, how we're perceiving the action, how we feel about the, the world that the story is taking place in, a lot of that is the function of what tense is this story in. And she switches, which, you know, you're not supposed to do, but she does it brilliantly. And uh, so I wanted to call attention to that here at the start. Yeah, it feels so natural as well. And there's other sort of grammatical tricks uh, that Carter plays throughout this story that we'll also be pointing out. And then, of course, we're going to talk about them in our discussion um, because I think it's very purposeful. Her doing this 
uh, and and really in the context of the whole story, I don't think would get her kicked out of that creative writing <laughs> class. Um, but maybe if you just read the first paragraph, you might be like, why'd she switch from, you know, the past, the, the revenants taking over the town to the cat is doing something. The revenants have taken over the count, town. The cat is doing something. Uh, it's so natural and she does it so well that you almost don't catch it unless you're paying very close attention. Yeah, and it really works so subconsciously to give us these little mood cues. So I'm looking forward to dissecting that in the discussion. But uh, let, let's move on to the second page of this story, and we can learn a little bit more about our setting and our, our character. And I'm going to do my actual job now of you know breaking all of this down and, and summarizing it, as beautiful as the language is, as much as it hurts me to, to chop it up this way. Now, we've briefly met the lady of the House of Love. This is the girl who is the lonely but beautiful queen of the vampires. And indeed, she is the last descendant of Vlad the Impaler, which is to say Dracula, although Angela Carter does not say Dracula. She says Vlad the Impaler. Now, her own father was staked to death, uh, dusted, we might actually say, by (laughs) an Orthodox priest when our protagonist was still a baby, though she has been told that his last words were, Nosferatu is dead. Long live Nosferatu. And I have questions uh, about what is meant by father here and it's like how vampirism works in this uh, speculative setting. But uh, we can do that stuff in the discussion as well, because what matters here is that she has grown up in this chateau in Romania all alone, save for a single servant. And this chateau, it's not in good shape. In fact, it's in bad shape. Uh, First of all, it's haunted by things that are not her. So she even only stays in one suite of rooms. And that suite is full of, and here I'm quoting, depredations of rot and fungus. There's dust and spider webs everywhere. The roof is leaking a little bit. It's leaving stains on things, you know, the water as it drips through. And the narrator calls the queen of the vampires here also the mistress of all this disintegration, uh, which is almost the title of a Cure album. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) so her life is really a type of imprisonment. Here, uh, her servant is an old woman who is mute, and her job is to make sure that this queen of the vampires never sees the sun, never sees mirrors, really is to make sure that she stays in her coffin during the day, and then also to make sure that she's fed, to make sure that she gets blood. And for that purpose, there is a closed garden where the queen of the vampires hunts rabbits and other small furry things. And occasionally, an unwise adventurer will pause in the square of the deserted village, and that is when the servant will lure him into the castle to become a proper meal for her lady. And of course, you know, people go willingly because uh, when they see the Queen of the Vampires, they think that they have just walked into an entirely different type of story. Yeah, there's a a different sense of enchantment they hope to fall under, I guess, than than being eaten. Uh, We're going to try to avoid reading the whole story aloud if we can, but I want to read a brief portion of the text where Carter really leans into this sense of enchantment around the queen, which I think is really important element in this story. So here's what Carter writes. She says, Now she possesses all the haunted forests and mysterious habitations of his vast domain. 
Uh, and that's Nosferatu. She is the hereditary commandant of the army of shadows who camp in the village below her chateau, who penetrate the woods in the forms of owls, bats, and foxes, who make the milk curdle and the butter refuse to come, who ride the horses all night long on a wild hunt. So they are sacks of skin and moan in the morning, who milk the cows dry, and especially torment pubescent girls with fainting fits, disorders of the blood, diseases of the imagination. This passage really highlights what is essentially a, a, a like a really dark fairy, fairy tale vibe that just <laughs> pulses in the background of a story that, you know, appears to be so far something that's just like a lonely vampire sitting in a room playing with tarot cards. The, the queen is described, though, also in these animalistic terms, which I think is a really nice touch as well, that kind of adds to this, this tension that is in the story. She even hunts like an animal. And so all this talk about the queen's impossible beauty and her wearing either like a negligee stained with blood or a wedding dress, these symbols of womanhood on some level are balanced by these other animalistic descriptions. And I think, you know, even though the action of the story right now is kind of the queen alone in a room, these descriptions are just so powerful to give us that, that Gothic mood. Carter gives us such an amazing sense of what her daily life is like or, or nightly life, I, I, I guess here, right? That we, we, that the, the plot, at least, you know, up to this point is not really existent, right? But the story that we're being told is just about what it is like to be this lonely vampire in this rotting chateau in Romania and to see how much it, it, it kind of sucks, but it is also really romanticized at the same time. And it's very, very impressive the way that Carter is balancing both of those things, right? Showing us how much this is not a good life, but then also making it really just romantic and, and beautiful at the same time. It's I'm, I'm impressed by how she's able to do that. Yeah, me too. I, I also want to touch on Carter's reference to Nasferatu here. So that word, that name, refers to this early film adaptation of Dracula that was filmed in the 1920s. And after it was made, uh, Bram Stoker's estate sued the like film company that made Nosferatu and almost all of the copies of the film were destroyed uh, because Nosferatu is a total copyright infringement on Dracula. Like <laughs> they remade Dracula and uh, just changed the name and thought like that's enough, but it, it really wasn't. Uh, but the, the important thing here is that uh, it's a German film and that's important for a reason I'll get into in a moment, but I, I really like that Carter is playing and, and kind of fixing this story in the history of literary adaptations of Dracula. I, I think adding Nosferatu into the mix this early in the story really adds to that, that German fairy tale sense, that sense of enchantment that I'm talking about that you really get with, and the darkness that you get with those Grimm's fairy tales. Um, and I think that's really important, adding that sense of the dark fairy tale of enchantment to the story by making this simple reference. This is, uh, you know, part of that line of uh, German folk tales on some level. It's really interesting to me that she invokes Nosferatu, but never says Dracula, right? Like she's very consciously not saying Dracula, but but is perfectly fine using Nosferatu, which 
I think is interesting in that Nosferatu is something you didn't say, Brandon. Nosferatu is a word that is largely invented for that film. It is a word that's uh, Greek or at least Greek in its origins. I mean, it gets this German spelling here, but it is a Greek word that more or less means, you know, someone who is, is, uh, he has a disease, I guess, basically is more or less what it, what it means. But I think we've all actually incorporated this into our pop culture sense of vampires as being some kind of more original term for vampire or older name of a specific vampire, like someone or something, right, that kind of predates Dracula, like Dracula is the kind of like watering down of what Nosferatu actually is without realizing that it's actually just a made up name for this one particular film. <laughs> right. That, that's a good point as well. Yeah. Nosferatu, I think because of the, the way the old film looks, it feels older than it is. Uh, but I mean, Dracula is it's, it's really an adaptation of Dracula. I, I do want to point out a few more things here before we move on. So I think that Carter has also really set up the the true conflict uh, in this story, in this section. And it, it turns out that kind of the conflict, the tension of the story that's being worked out is really an internal conflict that the vampire queen carries within herself. We see that internally this queen is confused conflicted about feeding. She doesn't like to feed. She doesn't like to kill the rabbits or the men, but she has to, though she does seem to enjoy the seduction routine that she puts on for all the hapless wanderers who cross her path. So there's this, this sense of kind of like coming of age here, this power that she knows she has that she doesn't like to use, but there are aspects of it that she really does enjoy. And I think Carter does a very good job of setting up this internal conflict for the vampire queen in this section as well. And the payoff for this is going to be awesome. Oh, yeah. I mean, this story pays off real, real nicely, I think. Yeah. Uh, so the last thing I want to point out here is Carter's use of the second person, um, which shows up sort of irregularly throughout the story, but enough that we should take note of it. Carter or Carter's narrator here essentially addresses the audience directly. So what we think is only maybe a third person story also comes with these startling admonitions to the reader, to Carter's audience. Carter addresses us directly and tells us that if we stop by the fountain, we will also be led by the countess. And this moment where she says, like, if this happens, this will happen to you, is the second time we've gotten second person in this story. The first time comes in what appears to be like a resonant or reverberant thought in the countess's head, you know, the queen of vampires mind uh, with the repeating clause of now you are at the place of annihilation. And these switches to second person, I think really further serve to give the story this haunted sense that like Carter is calling the reader into the story. And I think it's a really effective technique. And I can't think of many things I've read that employ this technique. And I think what's truly sad is that I can't think of any real way to steal it from her for my own writing. <laughs> <laughs> it gives the story this real choose your own adventure 
feeling, but you know, like good. <laughs> right. And it really, really works to suddenly, like, it's almost a shock, right? That you're, you're reading along, you're reading along and all of a sudden, wait, I'm in this story where I could be in this story. And it really makes the vividness uh, of, of the story come alive. Or I, well, that's what vividness means. It really makes the story vivid is what I'm trying to say here, right? <laughs> it, it, it pops. It just It's like a kind of jolt as you're reading and it just draws you in even more. But then it's over, right? It's not, you know, the story has not switched to second person. It's just this, you know, this one sentence and then, you know, a few paragraphs later or a few pages later, bam, another one. And it, it just is so startling and shocking and immersive. It is really awesome. I have no idea how I would ever use this in a story either. I mean, I just don't think this is the sort of tone that I write in, but I just marvel at this. It is marvelous. I mean, it's the kind of shock that hits you when you're reading it that doesn't take you out of the story. And and I mean, that's what you meant by immersive, but I just wanted to <laughs> add my own spin on that. But like, yes, this is a shock that immerses you deeper into the story. And that's what I marvel at is like, how did she do that? Yeah, I think we've entered the part of the show where we're just defining words. <laughs> so, so, it happens once in a while. I don't know what to say. <laughs> All right. Well, at this point, uh, Carter makes an, a, another just absolutely brilliant move, which is that we entirely switch perspectives. And now we're in the story of someone else. We're in the story of a young officer in the British Army. And this guy's spending some of his summer visiting some friends in Vienna. And then he's also doing a little bit of solo exploring of the little known uplands of Romania, uh, which he is doing on a bicycle. And here I'm just going to read another block of text that this will be the last time I, I do this. And it's not nearly as, as big as the opening was. He has the special quality of virginity, most and least ambiguous of states, Ignorance, yet at the same time, power in potentia, and furthermore, unknowingness, which is not the same as ignorance. He is more than he knows, and has about him, besides, the special glamour of that generation for whom history has already prepared a special, exemplary fate in the trenches of France. This being, rooted in change and time, is about to collide with the timeless Gothic eternity of the vampires, for whom all is as it has always been and will be whose cards always fall in the same pattern. So this is just an awesome description of this new character from whose perspective we're going to see the story, uh, but also an awesome description of the wider setting of the story and also uh, one of its themes, maybe one of its central themes. There's this sense of inescapable destiny or like fate is actually the word the text uses that the vampirous experiences. But then we're at this moment in history where that uh, that sense of destiny has kind of fallen on the, the Western world. And there's real power in this fate here, in this destiny. There, there's also power, though, in the rationality behind the construction of the bicycle. Uh, like, this is another tension here in the story, this like magic or fate or destiny in friction with rationality. And I think this is a really actually important part of the story, even though it seems like a non sequitur. Carter is really engaging in a little bit of some critique of the Enlightenment. You know, the bicycle is great. It's a great object of the rational mind. It uses Euclidean geometry and simple physics and 
Um, you can get places with it and it's wonderful. But by invoking the First World War, she's also reminding us that the rational mind has also created and invented really gnarly weapons like machine guns. These are also objects of reason. And so what we're left with is this sense where this this enchanted world and the world of reason are in collision with one another. And I think it's this is illustrated so well in her text. And you're right, Glenn, this is probably one of the central themes of this stories. And I think for us, Brandon, right, as as Americans and, you know, the age that we are at, the bicycle here, right, being held up as the kind of pinnacle of the technological age, like the fulfillment of the <laughs> enlightenment and the scientific revolution uh, strikes us as kind of silly. And I think it's probably supposed to be, though I suppose it is also possible that uh Almost 50 years ago, writing in the UK, that the, the bicycle maybe carried a different connotation than I think it, it it does for for us. But I do think that this is intentional. I, I do think that this is meant to be kind of a, a lighthearted, uh, that, that, the, that the bicycle is meant to come off as being, maybe not silly, but lighthearted and, and fun. Right. Whereas really the technological marvels, the the pinnacle of technology in this age is exactly these devices that are going to bring about the horror of the First World War, right? The machine guns, artillery, chemical weapons, and, and so on. Uh, it's not actually the bicycle that this age is really going to be remembered for. But but what a magical world it would be if it were. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that that would be the dream if uh, if bicycles were the pinnacle achievement, rational achievement of the Enlightenment. We'd live in closer communities. We wouldn't be commuting <laughs> to work in cars. We wouldn't have had to, you know, invent machine guns and atom bombs and things like that. We could have just said, "We got it, agriculture and the bicycle. We nailed it, guys. <laughs> we, can, we can go home." Um, but yeah, this this bit about the bicycle in the story is also immediately contrasted with. Um, the invocation or an invocation of in the enchantment placed upon Sleeping Beauty. For instance, we get the line, a single kiss woke up the Sleeping Beauty of the wood. And then also when the Countess, you know, is flipping over the lover's card, which is something that's happened for the first time in her deck. So that the fates are changing. Destiny is shifting on some level. So we have this, you know, this sense of rationality, the height of rationality combined with these real senses of deep enchantment and fate. And then to kind of add to it, and I don't think we mentioned this before. We have the continuation of the Giants poem from Jack and the Beanstalk, you know, like fee-fi-fo-fum. So, I mean, to attempt to try to make a point here and draw, <laughs> draw this all together, Carter's really juxtaposing the concept of rationality against the irrationality of fairy tales and enchantment and magic, which all have their own logic to them and their own explanatory powers as well. Well, and at this point now, the, the the story is going to be about literally the you know the collision of these two worlds, right? The 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 world of of technology, the world of of, of change, and then also this uh, what what Carter calls the timeless Gothic eternity, right? So uh, we'll go on here. We'll see how this collision is actually going to transpire in the figures of these two people, right? The Lady of the House of Love, or you know the Queen of the Vampires, the Countess, as we've been calling her, and this Virgin Officer and his bicycle. 
And the first thing I want to say uh, about this new section is simply that in the middle of the first paragraph of, of this part of the story, Carter again changes tense. She subtly changes from this present tense that we've been in back to the past tense that the first sentence of the story was in. And as we've said, we're going to talk about that in the discussion, but I'll continue here. So our British officer is disappointed that this village is seemingly abandoned and and ruined, but then all of a sudden there's this old woman there and she doesn't speak, but she is able to use some gestures to invite him into the castle. And that's pretty cool, right? What what an adventure, right? He's going to get to tell all of his friends about this crazy adventure. But then once he's inside and he realizes that the castle is not in good shape and it's very creepy. I mean, the whole situation is obviously very creepy, right? Uh, once he's inside, he's he's having some second thoughts, but he also feels like it's too late. But then it turns out that it's actually really awesome. The old woman brings him to the dining room, and then there's this meal of spiced meat stew with dumplings, and there's a, a shank, <laughs> that's the word that's used here, a shank of black bread, and there's wine, and all of that's just awesome. He loves this meal, uh, though you know the old woman does seem maybe to be sizing him up or something, but doesn't matter because the meal's great, and this is going to be a fine place to sleep. And now the meal is over, it's time to go upstairs, and the old woman knocks on a door, and the most seductively caressing voice he has ever heard answers the knock, uh, and does so in a heavily accented French. And, you know, right, this is uh, is feeling very much like a sexy vampire story here all of a sudden, but then (laughs) Carter pulls the rug out from under that. Our officer sees the the room is fairly gross and, and also sees that the, the source of the voice is really a, a 16-year-old girl who is very skinny and really looks like a child wearing her mother's clothes. Uh, she also seems to be wearing makeup, but without any knowledge of how to apply it or maybe, you know, <laughs> without access to a mirror. And on top of that, she can't really see very well. And the old woman has to put some very thick, very ugly glasses on her so that she can, you know, see who has entered her her rooms here. And when the, the two of them meet, there's also this like bumbling, stumbling moment that results in the countess, you know, this queen of the vampires dropping all of her tarot cards in this kind of, I don't know, Chevy Chase pratfall scenario. <laughs> I mean, it's supposed to be this comedic scene and it is, but it is also kind of, kind of a sad one. But they, you know, they recover from that. She makes some coffee. There are French cookies. They talk. It's all very nice. And she apologizes for having to keep the room so dark and, you know, so on, uh, you know, kind of delaying the revelation that she's a vampire here. And then we actually get a return to her perspective. It's a, a series of thoughts about how this life that she is living is a, a condemnation. And she really doesn't want to hurt this young man in, in, in front of her and thinking that she'll be gentle as she drains him of his blood. And then we switch back to the officer's perspective, just as the sun is going down. She invites him into the next room, which, you know, he knows is her bedchamber. And he he thinks about how she doesn't really seem to know what she's doing. You know, like she's not done this before. Also, here we get a brief aside about how this young officer, who we've already been, you know, told is a, a, a virgin. And we're told here as well that he's refused the help of his colonel in finding a suitable Parisian brothel in which to get rid of that virginity. And this is, I think, really here to help us see that he maybe doesn't really want to have sex with this poor creature, but that he also doesn't really know how to extricate himself from this situation. 
But in the end, the scene goes comedic again as you know, she stumbles and she breaks some glass and cuts her finger. And very gallantly, right, our, our young British officer here, he tries to stop the bleeding, but it, it, it doesn't work, right? Holding you know cloth to it doesn't make the bleeding stop. And he ends up sticking her bloody finger in his mouth. And then Carter writes this. All the silver tears fall from the wall with a flimsy tinkle. Her painted ancestors turn away their eyes and grind their fangs. How can she bear the pain of becoming human? The end of exile is the end of being. And we still have the resolution to go, but let's pause here before we see what actually happens to the young officer, because this scene is, uh, well, it's a lot to digest. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, Let me just start, though, by saying that the tense in person changes, uh, as as we've pointed out many times, will be discussed once we finish the recap. But needless to say, I, I you know, and maybe I'm overplaying my hand here when I say that these devices are are really poetic in nature, and I think they really contribute to the uh, this this feeling of uncanniness that that pervades the story. I don't really have too much to say about the plot here as it's unfolding either. The, the story definitely, Glenn, as you pointed out, has these sexy vampire vibes very <laughs> briefly. Uh, but what I really want to point out is how effectively Carter builds a sense of dread and uncanniness. The, the, the recollection that the soldier has to winter nights with his siblings telling ghost stories that he feels when he comes in the house and then is overpowered by this sense of decay beneath the powerful scent of roses. My basic theory for horror revolves around the concept of incongruity, you know, like something basically appears where it shouldn't be. And, and that, that's, that's horror in, in a nutshell. And I think Carter demonstrates this really well. Everything is just slightly off. How can such a good meal be served in this decrepit place? Like if the living room has fungus in it, like what is the kitchen like? You know, like I can't can't even imagine good food coming out of a place like that. You know, how can the vampire queen appear to be only 16? These switches in perspective when we see the countess from someone else's point of view rather than through this lens of her own interiority is incredible and and has this effect of incongruity as well. The rot and fungus everywhere in the tarot room described again in this tragicomic moment about the you know, symbolic loss of power for the countess. You know, she didn't shuffle the deck on purpose. I mean, I think it's really successful, like really, really successful. Uh, This story, what Carter has done in terms of tone and just in general, I think Carter has succeeded in, in everything that she's tried to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the first story for Elder Sign for 2022 that we're recording because we've gotten this commission sort of in the middle of 2021. And already I kind of feel like this is probably going to top my list of favorite stories (laughs) that we do this year. This story is so good. It is difficult to see how anything else we're going to read for 2022 is going to top this. Yeah, we'll we'll have to find out, but I'm excited to find out. I'm sure we're going to read some really great stuff in, in, in the uh, ensuing year. I, I want to continue on with this section, though. The, the Carter also includes the French language here as well, uh, where earlier we saw in italics uh, this intrusive line, these these lines uh, from the Jack and the Beanstalk poem, we get an intrusion again that I, I'm still not quite sure what to do with in French uh, that translates to, you will be my prey, followed by non-quoted 
dialogue. And so we wonder then, the way that Carter has sort of structured this and folded these elements into the story, we're left wondering, or maybe I just am, if these are the thoughts of the Countess or if she's speaking them aloud. Uh, we learn about the hope that the British soldier represents or, or means for the Countess. I mean, it's just one you know incongruity after another. And that's not to mention the second reference to Sleeping Beauty here. And we wonder then, is this a story about true love saving the Countess? And even as we have, you know, sprinkled in all of these despair elements, the tone of the story is so coherent. And again, I just have to say I'm a little in awe of what Carter has pulled off here. And I, there's more I could point out here as well, like the way the text refers to the soldier as a hero, this aside that you pointed out, Glenn, about the colonel offering to send the soldier to a brothel to have sex with a woman who plays dead, the gallantry of the soldier, as you pointed out, you know, all of this stuff is pretty important. But I think I think what I want to emphasize uh, after the, these moments of rambling is the they're speaking in French, I think. Um, and we've seen the sense of destiny around the, the, the French trenches and how that certainly almost means death. Uh, and then this uh, British soldier being a hero explicitly referred to as a hero. And all of this is going to mean something, I think in our discussion or our reading of the story. Yeah. We've really only got one scene left here in the story. So let me get us through that as I think we're both itching to get in, into the discussion. So let's see how this story concludes here. So the next morning, the officer wakes up in her bed, but he wakes up to the sound of lark song. The windows are all open. Sunlight is streaming in. Rose petals have blown onto the floor from outside. Very, you know, very romantic, very gothic here. But he also sees how shabby and cheap everything in this room is. And also, he's alone. Now, he thinks that the Countess has probably gone outside to enjoy the sunshine and maybe even pick a rose for him. And already, even before just getting out of bed at all, he's making plans to get her out of here, out of this shabby and cheap room, out of this you know, decrepit house. He wants to take her to a clinic in Zurich where she can be treated for what he thinks of as her nervous hysteria, also her eye condition. Also, he noticed, you know, that there was something maybe a little off about her teeth. And so he wants to take her to a dentist to deal with that as well. He really thinks that he can cure her of all these nightmares. And I think the nightmares here meaning her surroundings. And then he sees her. She's in the room. She's fallen asleep at her table with her tarot cards. She's slumped over. Except it turns out that she's not asleep. She's dead. And in death, she looks far older and less beautiful than she did the night before, but also fully human for the first time. And the old woman is there. She's weeping. And she gestures to him that he should leave. And so he gets his bicycle and he rides directly to Bucharest, where a telegram is waiting for him, urgently summoning him back to the UK to rejoin his regiment. And when he arrives there and is changing into his uniform, he finds that he has brought with him one of the girl's roses. And despite the amount of time that has passed, the distance that he's traveled to get back to Britain, this rose is not quite dead. And he places it in a little makeshift vase and he resurrects it at the water here. And the scent of this rose is so powerful that it fills the entire barracks. And the next day, his regiment embarks for France. And that is the end of the story. 
the, the end of this story reminds me a lot of Thomas Mann's novel, The Magic Mountain, which, you know, has nothing to do with magic or vampires at all, <laughs> but has a lot to do with, the, you know, reframing society as as something whose underlying and unaddressed problems are, are what led to World War One, as though, like, once knowing that World War One happened, uh, it could have been viewed as a sort of inevitability, like it was fated to happen based on all the unaddressed issues in, in this culture. And we really will need to talk about how Carter is utilizing World War One for effect in this story. And we'll get there in a little bit. But what I really want to start by doing uh, in our discussion is looking at how the story operates really as a piece of gothic and horror literature first. I want to start talk about how Carter starts out with the gothic tropes and uses them so heavily early on that it's almost a surprise to discover that we're in the early, or as Carter says, the pubescent years of the 20th century. So let's just maybe take a moment um, to talk about these gothic tropes. And Glenn, that's what I'm going to ask you first. What are some of the gothic tropes that you see Carter using? Well, first of all, this is a great observation, right? About even our understanding of when this story is taking place really on the first page of this story, I had the full sense that this is a story taking place in or somewhere in early modernity. Like, like to me, this felt like actually it was going to predate Dracula. Like we were going to be in kind of the, the 17th or 18th century here because of the way that Carter describes this village, even though she is doing so in these uh, very, uh, in, in what are very definite, you know, gothic terms. So, you know, going to be late 18th or, or 19th century sort of literary terms. And, you know, as we talked about at the, the beginning, you know, one of the main tropes of Gothic fiction that we get, you know, shows up right here in the opening. And it is the fact that uh, we're dealing with uh, an aristocratic family that is in some kind of state of decline itself, and that that decline is manifested in the place where they live, the ancestral home. And we also get that here in not just the, the building, the castle that they live in, but also the village surrounding it, right? All of it has decayed, been abandoned, and has just been filled up with shadows, shadows that don't even have any source. And that's about as gothic as you can get. Yeah. And I mean, you also mentioned this kind of like ro rose petals at the end and this kind yeah. of tropes. So you get like the dark shadows type of stuff you, <laughs> we see at the end of this story is also a big part of it. The the contrast between something that was once beautiful, that some vestige of that beauty still remains, but essentially everything else is in decline. And, and you know, that that thing that's a symbol for what was once great uh, is, is also present in this story, too. And yeah, those, those are those are that's just about it. I I mean, those are the real gothic tropes that make up the setting of this story and then also the the context. And, you know, in, in my sense of this story, the I, I, I'm given to understand that the Countess is the last vampire as far as anyone really knows. Uh, you know, I mean, the British soldier is not quite ready to believe that he's in a vampire story. And, you know, to me, this indicates in terms of intellectual history, like... That disenchantment, the concept of, of a disenchanted world has already set in in the zeitgeist. And 
Disenchantment is a concept used to describe how rational faculties and the scientific method overtook other explanations for how the world functions, you know, to the degree that we now have a kind of faith that by using our rational powers in the scientific method, we'll be able to know almost anything we seek to know, given that it has certain empirical qualities. So let me just put forth a a premise here that the, the British soldier is living in a disenchanted world in this sense. Now, Glenn, you're free free to disagree with me here, but the real (laughs) question I want to ask here is if this is true, that the world is really only enchanted for the countess because of some truth about her existence, even though she's imprisoned and the rest of the world has become disenchanted on the eve of world war one. Do you think that the British officer ever learns that he's in a gothic story or a vampire story? Like, from his point of view, what kind of story is he in? Yeah, I don't think he has ever understood that he's in a vampire story, right? I mean, when he wakes up in the morning, he's thinking about her clear vampire fangs, right? What's clear to us anyway, that our vampire fangs as just some sort of dental problem that you know, can, can get fixed, right? He's, he's thinking of this, uh, this woman, this girl, really, right? This teenager who he's just spent the night with as someone who's grown up without care, like as this orphan, right? And she's not had anyone to really care for her. And he wants to step into that role, right? He himself as an officer, we're going to assume that he's coming from at least some type of means, right? He's taking his vacation, uh, you know, overseas, and he's just on a tour of the Habsburg Empire here on on bicycle, right? He's a a gentleman of means. And so he's going to spend a little bit of his money taking her to a clinic in Zurich to get her teeth fixed. So I think at no point has he thought that he's in a vampire story. But I actually was wondering if in this world, right, in the the constraints of this world as Carter has conceived it in this story, if it's ever even possible for him to know that he's in a vampire story. Because I think that one of the things that's going on in this imaginary world here, as much as it resembles our actual real world, I don't think that the novel Dracula exists in this world. Right. I don't think that this is a book that he could have read and known anything about. And so therefore, vampires, I don't think exist really in the pop culture for him. And so, you know, this is like the conceit that I think we get a lot in zombie movies where we're like, hasn't anyone ever seen another zombie movie and like understand that they're in a zombie movie now and that they should be behaving a certain way if they want to make it out of this? I think that's exactly what's happening here, that he couldn't possibly know that he's in a vampire story because he doesn't know about vampires at all. Yeah. And and certainly with this introduction to Nosferatu, we get the sense that that was like a true local story, but that like, that wasn't going to make the international papers, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a, a priest killing a, uh, uh, an evil Lord is just like, okay, well that, that happened there. And then the town went to, you know, the town fell apart and, uh, that's kind of the sense we get here. But I, I mean, this, this kind of leads me to questions. I, we have lots of other questions to ask about this story, but Something that occurs to me right now is uh, how did the Queen of the Vampires become a vampire? Like, was she chosen by Nosferatu? Could Nosferatu reproduce? Is the officer now a vampire? 
Like how, how does that work for you in this story? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The metaphysics of vampires in this story. I don't have real answers. Maybe, maybe, maybe we can refine the questions, I guess, or, or point out, you know, where the questions are coming from. So, you know, for one, right, she is described as having a father and that father is a vampire who is killed by this Orthodox priest, right? The, the, this vampire is out in the countryside. The Orthodox priest meets him at a crossroads and dusts him. Uh, and then this is the context in which he shouts out Nosferatu is dead, long live Nosferatu. And I just don't understand what is meant by father here, right? Are we envisioning, uh, or is Carter envisioning, I guess, you know, a, a type of vampire that can still sexually reproduce and that the vampirism is a hereditary trait in that way? Or does father here mean the vampire who abducted her at some point in her life and turned her into a vampire by, you know, draining her of her blood and then making her take his. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but it certainly makes me, I mean, we're, we're going to, when we talk about World War One, there's like very soon, there's some real questions I have about, you know, fate and the British officer and the, you know, whether he's demonstrating any real power at the end or whether the world really is enchanted, we'll come back to all of that. But I guess another way of thinking about these questions is, yeah, the word vampire is really brought up in the story. So like this countess is explicitly a vampire, right? There's no questions about that. But she also maybe thinks of herself as a, as a sleeping beauty, or we also have this Jack and the Beanstalk reference where maybe she also thinks of herself as the giant. So this contrast between the, the, the kind of villain of the piece and Jack and the Beanstalk, and then also the damsel in distress and sweeping, sleeping beauty are, are present here in the story through these references. But they also make me think about fairy tales. And I'm wondering, Glenn, if you think fairy tales have a larger role to play in this story, apart from these references or apart from maybe how the vampire queen sometimes thinks of herself. I think they're playing a huge role here. And I want to talk about that. But I'm going to go back to your your previous question just to say, I think that we probably can answer the question of you know, what is vampirism and how is it spread to people here? I, I, I do actually <laughs> not think that that this relationship about father is a biological one. And that's simply because the end of the story really has something numinous, something supernatural, something magical or enchanted going on with blood and the act of drinking blood, right? And so I think that we can assume that that's really probably what vampirism is, that it's not this science fiction concept, but is actually this this fantastical concept here. And that what you know Carter is meaning by the word ancestors in this story, or the word father as well, is you know, this train of is this chain of succession of vampirism that is not a biological descent, but is this kind of, you know, like mystical descent. And I think that that feeds into then thinking about this in terms of its fairy tale quality, because absolutely Carter has mashed up ideas about vampires with elements from other 
fairy stories or other, you know, fantasy stories that uh, are current in 19th century and 18th century European literature. And yeah, Sleeping Beauty is one of them. Uh, we get these lines explicitly from Jack and the Giant Beanstalk. And there's a real sense here, right, that this uh, British officer is Jack. In fact, hey, I, I'd say there's actually like a 62% chance that his name is John, right? This, <laughs> like, that's just what the demography tells us. Uh, 62% of British men in uh, 1914 were named John. So he probably is Jack. I think the bicycle actually reinforces that image as well. Not that there's a bicycle necessarily in that story, but that Jack and the Giant Beanstalk is about, uh, you know, the Jack in that story, I guess is what I'm trying to say, is this this is kind of like ho-hum guy, you know, not a hero, uh, at least not in his outward appearances at the beginning of the story. And that's what we get of this British officer as well. He's just a guy riding a bike because, well, that's what guys do. You ride bikes. Uh, you know, you want to go on a tour of this remote part of Romania that uh, doesn't have public transportation, <laughs> maybe even renting a car. It's like not a thing, you know, that exists here <laughs> in 1914 in the Habsburg Empire. But he's got a bicycle, right? So he's a guy on a bike and wanders into this uh, this story that also does actually sort of involve him going like, you know, upward and entering the castle and and so on. And I think that this is where Carter's move to bring in multiple of these sort of early modern, you know, folktale traditions and kind of mash them up uh, a little bit here, maybe put them in a jar and shake them up and kind of see what new flavor we get. Uh, I think it's just so brilliant. Yeah, it is really brilliant. And I want to uh, also return to my question about vampirism. (laughs) (laughs) We're hovering around right now because there's also the sense that that the Countess had a mother, uh, that it was her mother's wedding dress that she's wearing. And the conflicted sense that the Countess has about actually drinking blood has this weird effect for me of making me feel like this girl grew up in kind of like a loving home with a mother and a father who all had to drink blood and they just like didn't like it. And like Nosferatu was just unlucky enough to get caught or something like that. There's this real, I mean, this orphanhood is, you know, also a big part of fairy tale stories, but there's this sense of um, the real loss of the family and living in the, not only the physical ruins of that, estate, but also the the emotional ones as well. But yeah, I don't know how mothers work in vampirism. So that was just another wrinkle to toss in there. Well, I, I mean, we also might even question whether or not she, there are vampires in this story, whether or not she actually is a vampire, right? She thinks she's a vampire, but really seemingly just because this mute woman has, you know, who's her servant has, has told her this or led her to believe this. But it might actually just be the case that the young officer is is right that what's wrong with her teeth is not that she's got vampire fangs but actually just that she's never seen a dentist and you know that she's just drinking she's surviving by drinking blood of animals and, and other people which i suppose could sustain you in some way maybe i don't know i haven't looked into this you know but but maybe it could in some weird way that this might actually just be a uh, an orphaned human girl who's been pretending to be a vampire not even of you know, you know, of her own will, but that she's been kind of trapped in someone else's story about who or what she is and has been behaving this way. I don't know that that's really my reading of the story. In fact, I'm certain it's not, but I think you could make a case for that. 
Yeah, I mean, one other thing that that contributes to that case is the recurring uh, image of silver, that like her tears are silver, but then also the mute woman uses a silver toothpick to clean like fur and gristle out of this girl's teeth. And as far as I know, silver is something that in a lot of vampire stories harms vampires, but here it's used as like a a toothpick or something. And then also the color of her tears. So that's just another kind of wrench in the, in the conception of the story or how to read it. You can probably choose to read this story as being a tragic portrait of a young girl. Who's just in a been abandoned and neglected and believes the wrong things about herself. But I think this story has something bigger on its mind as well. So let, let's talk about World War I now. Why do you think it is that Carter ends this story by having the British soldier head to the trenches in France? Like there's this sense of fate surrounding World War I, as we've touched on, and the, the countess or the narrator refers to the soldier as prey in in the French language towards the end of the story. So what I, again, Glenn, I'm just saying, ignore that first rhetorical question that I just (laughs) asked, because what I really want to ask you is why you think Carter, you know, juxtaposes fairy tales and world war one in this story. Well, I think this is the whole idea of the first world war bringing about this radical cultural change. Right. This is where in the, the aftermath of the war, we get the, the lost generation and the, the jazz age and we get uh, shell shock, uh, you know, which we, of course, call something different now, but where we get shell shock as this phenomenon, right, that this experience of trench warfare and, and chemical warfare and all these other elements of the First World War, the real industrialization and mechanization of war was this unexpectedly horrifying experience for every individual who was touched by it, but then also for societies and cultures uh, in their entirety. And it is really a profound change in, in, in the world. But one of the big changes that cultural historians will point to here is this sort of loss of innocence. And this is really encapsulated, I think, by uh, people who are actually writing literature during the war. And in particular, uh, we can think about uh, Wilfred Owen, for example, who we've, we've mentioned on uh, podcasts that we've uh, done together over on ATOS, is this, this British officer, you know, basically the same age as the character we get in this story, who writes this absolutely beautiful poem about watching one of his comrades choke to death on his own body in the midst of a, a chlorine gas attack in the trenches in France, and how this picture is not the glory of war that he was told about as a youth in this British educational system, and that how these experiences have really shown the people who participated in in this war that everything that the adults in their world, everything that their society told them when they were kids, has been a pack of lies, right? That the world was not actually this magical fairy tale place with heroes and clear villains, but that it is an awful, horrifying place where the real enemies are actually the institutions of which you yourself are a part, are are a member, right? The political institutions in which you live your life, the economic system in which you live your life, that you are uh, a cog in the machine and that sometimes the machine is actually just a horrible death machine. 
Yeah, it's almost like th- this wistful feeling for a horror story that you think you can survive would be preferable or a belief in that would be preferable to going to the trenches in France in World War One. And I think that's what Carter is doing here, as you've done a great job describing, basically reminding us that there was a world once or a belief in a world once or stories about a world once that the worst thing that could happen to you was having to eat your way out of a candy oven or something <laughs> like that or or trick an evil witch you know but you're not making out of you're not making it out of this world alive and i guess that's like, like kind of the final story question i want to ask you is do you think the british officer makes it out of the world war 1 story alive he's referred to as a hero maybe he's part vampire now uh i don't know but do you think Carter is giving us this sense of hope at the end or the sense of gloom and dread? Well, I definitely think it's a sense of gloom and dread. I don't think this is uh, an urban fantasy story in which he now is like <laughs> one quarter vampire. And so is this really awesome soldier. I mean, I would read that book, I guess, but I, just don't I, I wouldn't, that's what I wouldn't read it, but I'd be, I'd be glad to know that someone had written it. <laughs> You're right. I would, uh, I would half pay attention to a, uh, a TV adaptation of that book and then mildly complain about it to you <laughs> when we talk before we start recording podcast episodes. But yeah, I don't think that's the story that we're in here here. Just even just thinking about like, what is actually the arc of this character, right? This is an innocent, virginal character whose name is probably John, who is in this situation, right? He's wandered into a vampire story, doesn't really know it, He's but he's in this tricky situation and he is simply behaving the way that stories have taught him to behave. Right, the stories that he's learned and read and heard as a kid, you know, everything that he's learned in school, you have taught him to uh, behave gallantly in a situation like this, and he does, and he survives an, an encounter with a vampire by by behaving that way, by doing everything that was expected of him, right, by doing things right, by emulating the stories that he's grown up with. But the thing is that that's what World War One shatters, right? World War One is about shattering the idea that the world actually is the way it is in fairy stories and to realize that it's not. It's a world of machines and machines that are not even just designed to kill you, but that kill you in the sort of most impersonal way possible, right? That the machines themselves are just part of a system of industrialized death. And there's really not any gallantry that's going to save you from that, right? That this is, it turns out, not actually a world in which individual character attributes determine whether you live or die, whether you survive this war or not. And so my sense of his future is that it's ironic that he wanders into a vampire story without realizing it, survives it, but then goes to the First World War and, and that you just can't survive because it's not up to you. It's just all random chance and you're a powerless person in the First World War. Yeah, that's that's my sense of the story as well, which is ultimately just a, a deeply heartbreaking story. Uh, but we promised to talk about a few craft things in this story oh, yeah. as well, which will hopefully be a little more uplifting than talking about mechanized industrial death and warfare. So, uh, you know, let's talk about those things now. So one of the things we pointed out while reading this story was how Carter switches from third to first to second person perspective throughout the story. And I, I pointed out how there's 
these function to add to the sense of uncanniness, uh, to give us these deeper senses of incongruity, which to me add to the enchantment, the enchanted world of the story in contrast with the disenchantment of the British officer. But I wonder, Glenn, if you had any different senses in, in how these switches in perspective function in terms of the mood of the story, or, or maybe you have a totally different read as well. Let me start by trying to connect the two things together, right? The thing that we've just been talking about, which is to say the the, the fairy tale elements of this story and how that crashes into the First World War. I want to take that as a, as a theme or a motif of the story and think about how Carter uses her grammar, right? Her, her writing style here, her, you know, just wordsmithing craft to highlight that, to emphasize that, or to make the two things work together, right? That we've got here a collision between two different characters or two characters who are inhabiting different types of, of worlds. We've got this character who is living in you know, the, the epitome of civilization, right? The, 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 the fulfillment of the enlightenment and the scientific revolution. I mean, he's got a bicycle, right? And then we've got, we've got him. And then we've got this young woman vampire you know, trapped in this Gothic story, uh, uh, you know, a prisoner in this type of story, right? She can't possibly leave this story. She is trapped in this, this time that doesn't change. And then we get the contrast with the character who is living in a society where where change is the the norm, right? Technological change is happening all the time. And I think that the 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 choice to narrate one story in the present tense, or one, you know, one character's perspective in the present tense, and the other character's perspective in the past tense, or the perfect tense, right, really supports that without having to call any attention to it. It just changes the whole tone of the story. And you just feel like you've, even if you don't realize consciously that the grammar has shifted, that the tense has shifted, you, you pick up that the tone is different depending on which character's perspective you're in. And that is just beautiful and brilliant technique. Yeah, that, that's a great explanation or uh, other explanation of how Carter is using grammar to convey tone and mood in a, in a really kind of unconventional way. You know, I, I have this sense that this story could really have been written out as a long poem, if not in a, in a rhyming verse, then at least in a blank verse, that might be a fun project to undertake, <laughs> but, but this story is full of these sorts of poetic devices that, that kind of in a poetic framework really allow you to suspend that extra bit of disbelief that you you carry with you into a prose piece you know the switches in person switches in tense narrative intrusions dialogue without quote marks you know all of these devices are here in this story so i i mean this answer might not be different than the last one you gave but how do you think the poetic devices that carter's using serve carter's goal in in telling this story we've talked about how the the switching person of the writing right from the the third person to the second person then also these these first person moments as well serve to bring us the reader into this story and of course there are other techniques that can immerse a reader in a story bring a reader into the story but this to me the the second person in particular you know i joked that it was you know like a, a choose your own adventure story but really it actually captures i think this tone and mood and maybe even almost voice of 
a, a kind of folktale or, or fairy tale in, in the, the Grimm's brothers uh, sense of the word fairy tale in which the characters are so generic you're usually so generic anyway, or at least these stock characters, that we are almost implicitly being invited to put ourselves into those stories. Think about, you know, what we would do or just imagine this happening to us. But Carter uses her wordsmithing technique here to do this in a in an era of writing and in a genre of writing in which that is not the norm, right? In which the the expectation is that we are being told stories about other people, that we've come to this story collection to actually get stories about a world that is different from the world that we inhabit, uh, about experiences that are different from experiences that we could ever possibly have. And right, we are going to speculative fiction in part, at least, to get that out of these stories. But Carter's breaking that down here and making this story feel like it's about us in this really visceral way. And this was a story that made me feel like I was a part of it in ways that I, I'm just not sure that any other story really ever has. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think uh, to kind of sum up your point here that that these poetic devices essentially are, are immersion techniques and that I, I agree. You don't notice them consciously when you're reading, like you and I take stories apart, you know, once a week, that's just for fun. But I think if you're just casually reading this story, you're just going to be pulled deeper into it as a result of Carter's use of these kind of poetic devices that allow you really, as I said, to just suspend any disbelief. The voice is really what is keeping all of these poetic devices together. And so because Carter's voice as a writer in this story is so tightly constructed, you don't feel thrown off balance by any of these odd techniques, you feel like you're being drawn deeper into the story. Yeah, it's a real sophistication that I, I would actually have a hard time, you know, breaking down if we were actually, you know, in a creative writing class. And this is the story that uh, that we were workshopping uh, this week. Though, if I found myself in a class where, you know, one of my uh, fellow classmates turned in a story this good, I think I'm not sure I would. I'm not sure I would come back <laughs> the next day. I think I think I would feel a sense of shame about my own writing ability here, because this story is just uh, just absolutely magnificent. And Brandon, I wanted to ask you about your experiences with reading Angela Carter. Is this your first Angela Carter story? It, it sure is. Yeah, this is the first one I've read. Yeah, same for me as well. I've I've heard of her before. You know, she is this really significant figure in British horror and and dark fantasy in particular of the the 1970s. And so I've I've seen her name in anthologies I've looked at. I've seen her invoked in, you know, introductions or essays about this type of literature that we cover here on the show, but I've never actually read a single story by her before and I really didn't know what to expect. And I don't think it really mad would have mattered what I went in expecting. This story was just so magnificent that it would have blown away any expectation that I had. It was so good. But what I really want to remark about here is that I think that if someone had just handed me this story without any, you know, information about who had written it or when it was written and asked me to, you know, put my historian's hat on here for a moment and try to figure out when this story was written, I would not have guessed that this was the 1970s. Uh, to me, this feels like it's 1992. And a big part of that is the mashing up of these different 
fairy tale elements and this almost kind of ironic detachment about the vampire story even while telling this really like even while telling a vampire story that is dialed up to 11 at the same time this felt like uh this felt kind of like a neil gaiman story or Anne rice or poppy z bright or somebody like that and and i was really surprised to see that sort of literary movement here uh kind of prefigured you know a good decade and a half before i really think of it as emerging on the scene yeah, that's an excellent point. I guess I didn't really give much thought to to when it was written, but uh, it feels really fresh. I mean, I think that I don't think this story would match the kind of contemporary publishing taste today. That's because World War One was like a hundred years ago uh, or more. I think you'd have to use like Vietnam or something like that, like a more recent war where you know people who fought in it that are still alive and, and things like that. You know, that would be like the one thing to do to update it. Um, but yeah, this story feels like it was written in like the exact perfect time, like 60 years after World War One, and like reckoning with these these changes that are still really impacting the world you live in, the global society you're participating in in the middle of the 1970s, um, the introduction of a new war that's going to lead to more death. So yeah, just uh, this story probably was really a reflection of the time it was written in as much as it is about, you know, disenchantment and the past and mashing up literary genres. It it still works today is, is what I'm saying. (laughs) <laughs> oh, well, all right, Brandon, I've got one last question for you before we uh, we get out of here and close this episode. And it's uh, it's just this, uh, you know, it's one of my stock questions for you, which is, was there anything special that you were listening to while you read or, or worked on this story this week? No, I had so much on my mind this week. I was just listening to like a YouTube like a nine hour YouTube video that was like ADHD music for studying. That was just like <laughs> low tones and a consistent beat um, because I just had a million things going on. So yeah, I didn't put anything on. I'm sure you had, uh, I'm sure you had something on. Well, I did. And really the only reason that I, I decided to ask you this is simply because it amused me that you brought up the film Nosferatu earlier, which I, I know is a famous film. I have never actually seen it, but I frequently listen to the the score for for this uh, this film, uh, which was uh, done by, uh, by Hans Erdmann. And it's an absolutely brilliant film score. And I just put it on. I have a couple of, of, uh, I have a couple pieces of music that I like to listen to when I'm doing vampire stories, mostly film music. In fact, almost entirely film music. And I, I hesitated at, uh, putting on the, the score to the, uh, Francis Ford Coppola Dracula film, uh, <laughs> though, uh, that's actually of course, contemporary to the, uh, the, the 1990s literary movement that I, I just invoked. And I'm not sure what compelled me to, to put on the, the score to Nosferatu by Erdman, but, uh, it turns out that it was actually just the perfect accompaniment uh, to this. So I recommend that to people who are wanting to, uh, uh, check out this story, put that on while you read it. The, the town I grew up in has a small movie theater, you know, single screen, you know, $2 tickets, 50 cent popcorn, you know, all that stuff. And they do Nosferatu pretty much every year and bring in uh, an organist to play the live uh, track to accompany the film. And I went to see it one year and it was really cool. I mean, what a cool experience. Something that is much on my mind these days is what should be the first movie experience for my son? And uh, maybe it should be that. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, he can certainly fall asleep with no no problems, I think, in, in that theater. Uh, but anyway, now that we're just talking about going to the movies, I think it's time to call this episode. So that is going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. I hope it came through, not just in our words, but in the, the tone that we had while talking about this story, that we loved this story. And so I just want to say, again, a real special thanks to the Patreon supporter who commissioned this episode. Thank you so much for introducing us to Angela Carter. We've got this collection now, and we are going to want to go to this, I think, again and again. So thank you so much for that. Yeah, thanks. I, I'm really glad to have read this story this week. And this is one of the big reasons that we love doing these commissioned episodes. And so if you would like to commission an episode of your own, you can do that by visiting the website. You can also contact us via email, which is just claytemplemedia at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Reddit. We'll take direct messages there. If you're a Patreon supporter, you get a discount on commissioned episodes and even a free episode at some levels. And Patreon is also a great place to message us as well. We really do love doing these. So if you've got something that uh, you'd like to hear us talk about, maybe it's a classic story you know we've read before. Maybe it's a writer you don't think we've ever heard of. Either case, we'd love to do that. So we hope you'll take us up on that. So next episode, we will be back with the next installment in The King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers. We are nearing the end of this super important and super awesome short story collection. And that story is going to be The Demoiselle Dies. Until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>